Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Have you ever been infatuated with someone? Someone with whom that infatuation was forbidden? Maybe you didn't want to see the crash landing coming. You didn't want to see the terrible decisions you'd make, the lies you'd tell, the betrayal you'd say yes to. The dire, permanent consequences of your actions, well, those were just inconvenient possibilities that you decided to gamble against. This is the second installment of our Why'd You Do It series, and that is just part of Toby Doerr's story. It's 2006. She's 46 years old, teaching people who are incarcerated how to train dogs at Lansing Correctional Facility in Leavenworth County, Kansas. She meets and develops romantic feelings for one of her students, John Maynard. He'd been convicted of first-degree murder for his role in a fatal 1996 carjacking. Because she's married with children and he's, well, incarcerated for life, this is a particularly forbidden relationship. But Toby agrees to sneak John out of prison in her van by concealing him in a dog crate. And the two of them go on the run for 12 days before a high-speed chase with the police lands her on the other side of the prison bars. Today, we hear about the series of choices she made that caused so much destruction and how she began to rebuild her life from behind bars. Here's where she starts her story. So I had started the prison dog program, and I'd had it in existence for a couple of weeks. And the warden asked me if I could bring in more dogs because he had more handlers that wanted to be in the program. And he also set up a press conference for me so that the press could come in and learn about our program. And I was walking across the yard in the prison, going to the press conference, and I was going over in my mind what I wanted to say. And I noticed this inmate walking right towards me, you know, directly at me, which they don't generally do. And he stopped right in front of me and stuck out his hand. And he said, my name's John Maynard, and I want to be your next dog handler. And I was like, Okay, so I told him the process to be a dog handler. And then I went on to my press conference. But, you know, I, I'll never forget seeing him walk and stop in front of me. And he's like a foot taller than me. And the sun was behind his head. So it almost looked like he had this aura around his head, which was just really strange. So did you know at that point, oof, there's something here? Yeah, yeah, he was intriguing. He intrigued me, but I didn't know why. So eventually you started working together. Um, what was it like getting to know him? Well, he was in my dog program for about a year. Uh, and he was a difficult uh, person in my dog program because usually I could tell the, you know, the handlers, I want you to do this. And I could say, I want you to walk backwards and hop on one foot while you're trying to train your dog. And they would have said, okay, you know, they would have done it. But everything I told John, he was like, I don't think that's the best way to train dogs. I think you need to be firm and have discipline. And I was like, no, 
I want to do positive reinforcement. And he would debate with me about which method was better and which was different. And finally, you know, I take his dog. He had the best behaved dog in the whole program. But when I took his dog to the dog adoptions, it was like a toddler in a candy store. You know, the dog just ran amok. And I finally, I showed him a video of his dog when he wasn't around. He's like, oh, wow. And I said, that's the difference between positive reinforcement and negative. The dog respects you, but he doesn't know he needs to respect anyone else. And so, you know, that was intriguing because generally no one ever challenged me on anything. And I think, you know, when you get challenged on things, it makes you better and stronger at what you're doing because you need to justify it to someone. And it makes you rethink the way you're doing things. So it's one thing to work with this gentleman with the dogs and um, get to know each other in that sense. But there at some point was a moment where everything changed between the two of you. What was that moment? That was about a year after uh, I was in the dog program or John was in the dog program. And two things happened and they happened very close together. One of them is that my dad was dying of cancer and, and he had to have emergency surgery and have his bladder removed and they nicked his colon and, and, you know, that was bad. So they had to rush him back into surgery. And I was at the hospital all night and I came into the prison the next morning and John said, what is going on with you, Toby? There's some burden you're carrying. You know, I just noticed there's something different with you and no one else, including my husband, it didn't ask me how I was feeling about any of this or even notice that I was struggling with something. And so that kind of was eye opening. And then within just a few days, uh, one of my dog handlers got aggressive with me out in the yard and was yelling at me and had his fists up in my face. And I felt very threatened and fearful. And John Maynard came strolling out and walked up and just defused the whole situation sent the guy back to his room and and walked me to the gate to get me out of the prison. And I was afraid. And I told him, you know, I don't, I'll continue doing the dog program, but I don't want to go back inside the prison. And I was told, well, when you come to the prison from now on, just page John Maynard to come to the gate. And we talked to his boss and we freed him up. So when you're in the prison, his job is going to be to escort you around and make sure you're safe. So that really set up an opportunity for us to spend quite a lot of time together and an opportunity to talk and get to know each other better, which, you know, developed into something more than I ever thought it would. There was a kiss, right? Yeah, there was. Tell me about it. It was, you know, just like, on fire. I was just on fire. And I just felt like, you know, uh, no way I had ever felt before. And it was like, I just craved being near him. I couldn't get enough. And, and it was so weird because, you know, in prison, you can't really hold hands or talk or so you can be with this person and you know, you're developing feelings for him. And he's told you he's developing feelings for you. And there's this chemistry and this sizzle in the air but you can't ever reach out and even touch them because, you know, that's not allowed. And so it made everything that much more intense, I think. 
Was it like snuck out of the view of cameras and personnel? Yes. And it was just really brief and uh, was around a corner where no one was and there weren't any cameras, but that wasn't a, a norm. And, but it was, it was enough to make me want more. At this time, how long had you been married? Uh, 28 years. And you had said that after losing your daughter at birth, mm-hmm. Emily, Emily, um, yeah, 18 hours and 31 minutes she lived. I found myself staying so busy that I didn't have time to think or feel or grieve or, you know, anything. I just kept myself so busy that I was always exhausted. And your marriage began to, um, what would you, how would you say it? Well, you know, I think my husband and I, my first husband and I met when I was 15. We were in high school together. And we got married when I was 20. And you're not really adults then. And I really think our paths just diverged as we grew. And at this particular point in our life, our sons had left home. They were in college. And it would just became glaringly obvious that we no longer had anything in common. And, you know, I wasn't angry at him. He wasn't angry at me. It wasn't that we didn't get along. We just didn't do anything. We weren't part of each other's lives, hardly in any way. All that we really had in common were our sons and their activities. But now that they were gone, I realized this isn't going to be the rest of my life. This just can't be. And then John Maynard kisses you. and Yeah. And then John Maynard stepped in at that moment. And uh, uh, yeah, and I came alive again. And that was a moment that was one of many moments where you could have stepped away and made other decisions. Yes. Yes, I certainly could have. All along, I had the power to step away and do something different, but I just couldn't. I mean, I just couldn't even conceive that it was possible. So let's jump ahead to the day that John is in a box in a dog crate in a van that you are driving away from the prison. Um, How did this plan come to be? Whose idea was it? It was John's. You know, he asked me at one point, he said, if I wasn't in prison, would you be with me? And I said, you know, I think I might. You know, in my mind, thinking we're talking about he's out of prison. In his mind, he's thinking, well, now I need to find a way to get out of prison. And so he started talking about these ways he was going to escape. And I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was a game. I mean, and it was fun. It was kind of like he'd say, I'll put myself in a box and ship me out with the UPS truck. And I'd say, well, that's a stupid reason. Because where are you going to ship yourself to? And how are you going to get through the heartbeat monitor? You know, I would blow holes in all of his ideas. And to me, it felt like kind of a puzzle, kind of a game. And then he said, I could hide in your van in a dog crate when you come in to do a dog adoption. And I said, well, that's the only idea you've had that would probably work. And then, you know, I went on about my day and he immediately thinks that's how we're going to do it. And he starts working through scenarios of how to make it work. And then when he first proposed it to me, I was like, no way, I can't do that. You know, and then I thought maybe I could do that. You know, 
if I do this thing, no one's going to try to make me stay in my life that I don't want to be in. I'm going to make a change that I can't recover from. And so maybe this is what I need to do. When you pulled away from the prison, Mm -hmm. you'd mentioned that you you kind of drove for a little bit and then pulled over and for a second sort of held your breath and, and thought, you know, is he really back? Like, did is this really happening? And you called out to see if he was there and there was this moment of silence. And for a second you thought, maybe he's not really there. And you were relieved. Yes, I felt such a sense of relief. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, you know, that was a fun game. But now I'm going to go back to my real life and I'm going to go do a dog adoption. You know, and just then this arm popped out of the box and this manic laugh, you know, filled the van. And I pulled over and I thought, oh, there's no going back from this. I mean, I can't put this monkey back in the cage. It's done. And I I was frozen. I didn't know what to do. You know, and then John said, drive, Toby, drive. And I said, okay. And I drove. What did you really think what happened? You know, honestly, there was part of me that I kind of looked at this like a vacation, you know, like I would just go, we'd have fun and, and I'd come back. I didn't know how I was going to come back or what it was going to look like or how long it was going to be, but I never thought I wouldn't be back. But you thought that maybe like he would just remain isolated somewhere in a secret place and you would go along as usual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was not stupid and I lived out in the world and I should have realized, you know, that they're going to find you. And I think deep down, I maybe knew that I just wouldn't admit it to myself because I think if I admitted it to myself, I would have never done it. Um, John, on the other hand, you know, when he went to prison, there wasn't an internet. There weren't cameras on every street corner. There weren't cameras in the stores. There weren't smartphones. I mean, he had a pager when he went to prison. So he truly had no clue how the world out here worked. I did know that there were cameras, but I thought, well, if we wear a wig and we're somewhere far away from here, you know, they won't put two and two together. But obviously, that's not realistic. (laughs) So as one can imagine, you finally were able to spend a lot of time with each other uh, beyond the obvious. How would you spend your time with John? Well, you know, we did spend 24 hours together every day and there were awesome, great parts of it. You know, our physical relationship was probably the best part of it. Uh, But John was 17 years younger than me. So there was a big age difference and he went to prison when he was 17. So it wasn't apparent to me when we were in the prison that he maybe lacked some maturity and it, it, you know, it kind of irritated me some of the things. (laughs) And, you know, over time it became less and less enchanting, although I was still in love with him and I still wasn't ready to be caught but it was becoming less heavenly, I guess. What did you make out of the fact that this dude was in prison for life because he murdered somebody? I mean, like that's... Well, here was the thing about that. So 
he actually never killed anyone. He was in prison for life for felony murder. And felony murder is an old law from like 15th century England, where anyone who's involved in a crime in which someone dies is guilty of murder. So he didn't have a gun. He didn't shoot anyone. He just was stealing a car. And the buddy he was with had a gun and did shoot and kill someone while they stole the car. So they were all guilty of felony murder. And John was only 17. And so at the time, he didn't think he could go to prison for murder because he didn't kill anybody. And so he didn't participate in his defense at all. And as I learned the story and I got to know all of these men who are my dog handlers, you know, I saw them as human beings who had done something to get him in prison. And the fact that John was in serving a life sentence for a murder he didn't commit made me feel like something was wrong there. You know, there's something wrong with that. And so I think if he had truly killed someone, I wouldn't have been willing to help him get out of prison. But for some reason, I felt like it was a wrong thing. So you've described your time on the run as 12 wonder-filled days. Is there a part of it that you always remember, like when you, you, you've talked about this, you've told the story a thousand times, but like, is there a part that really sticks out as a very special moment? Yes, I think so. So John, I brought my mandolin with me and John is an awesome musician. And so he would light a fire in the fireplace and he would sing Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl to me and play it on the mandolin. I love that song. And that was so romantic, you know, it was so beautiful and it was just, um, so peaceful. And I think that's probably what I remember when, when I think of the good times. That's Toby Dore. She's the author of Living with Conviction and You Are Not Your Worst Mistake, poems from prison. When we get back, what's it like being in a high-speed chase with the police? When we couldn't get through any further going on the lanes we were in, he drove across the median and went the other direction. The fallout begins I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Hey, baby, we're coming back around. We're going back down now. 
He went through the meat, we had him boxed in, and he turned around on us. That's how I gotta let you go, bud. It's crazy. He's going everywhere. It's crazy, buddy. I never seen nothing like it. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. 17 years ago, Toby Doerr was teaching people who were incarcerated how to train dogs. Normally, at the end of her day, she'd drive off with those dogs, just nestled in their crates, secured in the back of her van. She'd head home to her husband of 28 years and her two kids. They'd have dinner, go to bed, repeat. But two days before Valentine's Day in 2006, she snuck John Maynard, who was incarcerated for his role in a fatal carjacking, out of prison in a dog crate in her van. They had developed very deep feelings for each other, and the series of decisions they made gave them exactly 12 days together on the run, until it all came to a crashing halt. Let's get back to our conversation. Those 12 wonder-filled days ended uh, in a police chase. Mm-hmm. And a crash. And a crash. I know that this is probably a story you could tell over the course of many hours, but mm-hmm. what what in the world did it feel like to be chased by a ton of cops ending in a crash and your arrest? You know, it was the craziest thing because, you know, John said, oh, Toby, look, this is for us. And I looked, I was looking out the side window and so I wasn't looking ahead and all these police cars were on the interstate and it was like midnight. So, you know, it's dark. And what I was looking at is they had closed the entrance ramp over here so that no cars could get on the interstate. And I was looking at that thing and why would they close it entrance ramp, you know? And so when I saw those police cars in front of us, I was stunned because there had to be like 40 or 50 cars. And I thought, wow, who do they think we are? You know, like we will pull over. And John asked me, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think we should pull over. And he said, okay, I'll pull over. You know, you're part of this too. You should get a say. And just then a police car sped around us and zoomed in front of us and slammed on their brakes because they wanted us to hit them, which would stop us. And it made John mad. And he said, I'm not stopping now. I'm going. And so we took off on this car chase that was over 100 miles an hour, you know, down this interstate. And when we couldn't get through any further going on the lanes we were in, he drove across the median and went the other direction. And this was a wide wooded median. So you couldn't see the northbound traffic from the southbound lanes. And then eventually when we came out on the other side, he lost control of the truck and we hit a tree head on. And I was praying that I'd be killed in the car crash because I knew we were going to hit the tree. And I thought, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening. I don't want to deal with it. You know, just let me die. Just let me die. I'm happy to die now. And I didn't even get hurt other than bruised. What was your fatal flaw in terms of getting found out? It was such a fatal flaw. So I bought a truck for our getaway and we knew we were going to this cabin to stay for a month. We didn't know where we were going from there. We spent a lot of time planning the escape, but not a lot of time planning what we were going to do. So I knew that we had to legally register that truck or we'd get pulled over because we didn't have a license on it. So I got a 30-day tag, but I had them send the title to our getaway cabin. Damn. I used a fake name, you know, but they saw through that. Oh, it took them two weeks to figure it out, though. But they did figure it out. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. So then you spend 27 months in prison. Yes. Uh, how was prison? You know, I never want to do it again. I never will do it again. It was so hard. But at the same time, I found my freedom behind bars because, you know, out here in the world, every one of my days was filled. You know, I tried to keep myself so busy. I had so many tasks, so many emails, so many duties, so many deadlines, so many responsibilities that I never had time to think about who Toby was or what Toby was going to do. But in prison, all I had was time. I mean, there is literally nothing to do, not anything to do. And so I thought, well, I could take this 27 months and use it as a gift of time to myself, where I can look back in my life and, and analyze, you know, decisions that I made or events that happened, like my the loss of my daughter, Emily, and open those wounds back up and let myself grieve for them and heal again. And so it was a very safe place to do that, you know, behind bars where nobody could interfere and nobody could distract me. Not only did you lose your freedom, but you, of course, lost your husband who divorced you. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Your two sons, uh, things were strained. Yeah, they still are. Yes. And I understand that, that your younger son also had died um, while accepting your apology, but but would not accept your hug. Yes, that's right. Yeah, my youngest son, Greg, was diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma the day I was released from prison, which was also his 24th birthday. And he died a year later, just 17 days before his 25th birthday. And so you had a lot of people who'd felt betrayed by you, also the warden of the prison, David McCune. Um, so it's a long list of people who you hurt. Um, and of course, this was the end of your relationship with John. Um, yes. Of course. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a lot of loss. And I, I know you had time to process a good amount of old grief while you were in prison. Um, after you got out, how did you start facing those betrayals and the people who you did betray and lie to? You know, I wrote to Dave McCune, the warden, a month before I was going to be released from prison. And I apologized to him. And I told him that I knew he had put his utmost trust in me and that I had betrayed him. And not only had I betrayed him, but I brought international news highlight onto his facility that he didn't deserve. You know, he was a warden who truly, in all my time of being in prison or working as a volunteer, he's the only warden I've ever met who was truly in it because he wanted to see people reformed. You know, most wardens just want to punish and just want to be as mean as they can. But he didn't. He was in it for the right reasons. And I wrote to him and I apologized. And I said, I know that I betrayed you and I know that I lost your trust and, and I'm so sorry. And he wrote back to me within a week, I got a letter back from him and he said, Toby, I was a lot of things when this happened, but angry at you was never one of them. I was always concerned for you. And he said, don't let this become who you are. 
You are so much more. You are still a person who has so much to give this world and are worthy of being here and doing something that makes a difference. So don't let this become who you are. Rise above this and do something with your life that makes a difference. And so that really inspired me and lifted me up on my darkest days, you know, and I thought, you know, the days when I'd feel so down, when I was trying to find my way back into my life, and I felt like it was impossible. And then I would remember, well, Dave McCune thinks I should, I can do it. And then I'm worth doing it. So I'm going to do it for him. And it really did make a difference. But it is hard. It's so hard to get out of prison. You know, you leave prison, you leave the world, truly, you're just chopped out and set over here. And the whole world goes on. You don't go on. You're just sitting here. You come back and you try to fit in to this place where you left. And people have changed. People have moved on. People have new things happening in their lives. They've gotten used to living their life without you in it. Truly, you have to start all over and you have to find a way back into those relationships. And that didn't always happen. My mother was awesome. My brother was awesome. My other brother was supportive of me. My sisters had a little harder time opening up and and embracing me back in. They didn't feel, I guess, that I had gotten punished enough and that, you know, I, I don't know. But and then my sons, of course, that was my biggest heartbreak. But, you know, we found a way to move past it. And uh, my oldest son is still living and he has three children. I have seen those grandkids a handful of times, but not for very long. And um, I honor his decision to keep me at arm's length. I mean, that's his choice. I'm not going to force myself. You know, but if he ever decides he's ready, I'm always here and waiting. When I think about the choices you made, and I've heard you talk about how you blew up your life. Um, when you blow up your life, you want to be like, why did it have to come to this? Right? Like, I didn't have to blow up my life and hurt so many people in order to achieve some fundamental shift and how things were going, right? I could have, I could have done it differently. But the fact is, there's this quote, there's this quote by Byron Katie, who says something like, if you want to know whether or not something should have happened, here's the answer. If it did happen, it should have happened. Mm -hmm. It should have happened if it did happen. And I, I think about that when I'm struggling with feeling betrayed or feeling angry, or you know, someone did something to me, right? Right. So in that spirit, I know in a way you wish you hadn't have done this, but is it true that you also kind of needed to do all this? Yes. You know, you hate to say if you had to do it over again, you do the very same thing. But if I had to do it over again and I was the person I was then, I would have done it again. And, you know, there have been a lot of sacrifices and a lot of people that I've hurt but there's also been a lot of people that I've helped on this journey. And I think the good outweighs the bad. I feel like, you know, a lot of times people want me to regret my actions, but regrets never change the past. They just draw energy from you in regretting. So I refuse to regret and I just continue to move forward and 
I look at that time, the darkest time in my life, as the time when I really found myself and I found who I was, you know, and I think rock bottom is a perfect place to rebuild a life from because you can't go any lower, which gives you a pretty solid foundation to build on. You published a book called You Are Not Your Worst Mistake, Poems from Prison. Will you read Becoming? Yes, I'd love to. I think this poem pretty much sums up my whole prison stay. The year I became a number and a face everyone recognized, but no one knew, not even me, who knew less than nothing of the woman buried inside. A turning point that year that was really more than a year. The year I lived on peanut butter, mail call, visiting day. The year I sank into the deep muck of depression, fears, and fate. The year when I felt I wasn't entitled to smile or dream. The year when the darkness settled and waters became clear and deep. The year I learned that hope is blue like a springtime sky and prayer is purple, bold, and royal and everywhere. The year I was just a number. 15186. The year I became me, who was always hidden inside. Thank you. You're welcome. Because part of your life is telling the story, mm -hmm. there had to have been a moment where you thought it was all worth it. All the pain, all the difficult, harmful, terrible mistakes I made, all the choices that I could have gone left and I went right. Like, what was that moment when you realized it was all worth it? That moment actually came pretty early. I was still in prison and I was on suicide watch because I was really struggling. You know, there were some of my family members who were upset with me because I'd done an interview with a Wall Street Journal reporter. And I just had this breakdown and I thought, you know, it would have been better for them if I had died in the car crash when we got arrested. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I could give them that gift. Maybe I could, you know, find a way to end my life and I could just give them that gift. And on the third day of suicide watch, you know, I spent that whole time and there's no bed, there's no TV, there's no radio, there's just nothing. And you lay on the floor and it's cold and you're really, they give you a tissue paper gown, but you can see right through it. So you're essentially naked in there. And I, I'm not a therapist or anything, but like that to me seems like not helpful for someone who may want to end their life. No, I mean, if you're not suicidal, when you go in there, you will be when you get out. That's what I said. But Actually, on that, and they, you know, they keep you in there so you can't kill yourself while you're on suicide watch because there's no way to do it. So it's effective physically, but in every other way, it's right. But on that third day, you know, I heard this voice come into my head because I was praying, you know, just let me go. I don't want to be here. There, I don't have anything to offer. You know, this would just be the best way out for everybody. And this voice came into my head and said, you are going to get through this and I'm going to be right here with you every step of the way. And when you get out, you're going to use your story. You're going to tell your story to change the lives of women. And so it was at that moment where I thought, okay, there's a purpose for this, you know, 
And so that's really the moment where it changed. And then, of course, that just continued to grow over time. You know, and now I like to say I found freedom behind bars. And the best thing that ever happened to me was going to prison, even though it was so terrible and so difficult and so hard. And I would never want to do it again. I could never wish it out of my life because it was such a powerful moment of finding myself. That was Toby Dore. And if you're struggling with emotional distress, you can call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. It's free, it's confidential, and it's available 24-7 in English and Spanish. After the break, what was it like for Toby many years later, visiting John Maynard in jail alongside her new husband, Chris? It was so weird, but it was yet at the same time, it just felt so good. I got to give him a hug and say goodbye. It was such a good thing for us. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Toby Dore became incarcerated for 27 months after she broke John Maynard out of prison by hiding him in a dog crate in the back of her van. After she was arrested, her husband of 28 years divorced her. Many of her family relationships were strained or completely severed, like in the case of her eldest son, who decided to distance himself. In the 17 years since everything happened, Toby has taken a lot of time to reflect. She's written books about her experience. She started a podcast called Fierce Conversations. And she's remarried now, living with her husband's son and his family. Now, a few years ago, Toby decided to visit John Maynard in jail with her new husband alongside her. What went into that decision? John and I were crazy mad in love with each other. I mean, it was just, and it wasn't a love that I think could have been a long-term love. It was like a fire in a pan and, and they burn out. But, you know, we're driving, we're having a day, we're having our normal day. And then we have this car chase and car crash. And I'm pulled out of one side of the car and he's pulled out of the other. And he's put in one police car and I'm put in another and we're driven to separate jails and that's it. You know, and how can you get past this thing that has been the center of your life when you don't even get to say goodbye? You know, it just was not healthy. And so for a lot of the time I was in prison, I just mourned for John and I wanted to talk to him and I, I couldn't get past him. And I knew that there was no future for us, but I didn't know how to get past him because it was just, you know, severed without any kind of closure. And so I got out of prison and I met my husband. I had no intentions of getting married. I didn't want to have, be in a relationship at all. But, you know, Chris was the one and we have a really strong, profound, emotional and spiritual connection that we just bring out the best in each other. And it's such a healthy relationship. And of course, you know, Chris was with me when my son died and I was going through all that, which really pulled us closer together quicker. And um, a couple of years after we were married, I got a phone call from a reporter and he said, I've been talking to John and he'd like me to give you him your phone number but I didn't want to do it without your permission. And I had this reporter on speakerphone and Chris said, Toby, I think you two need to talk. 
give him your phone number. You know, I'd like to talk to him too. And so John called and we talked and Chris and I both talked to him and Chris talked to him alone. And, you know, we kind of built this bit of a friendship and Chris said, you know, Toby, he doesn't have anyone in his life. I mean, at the time that I met John, he was in my prison dog program. He hadn't had a visitor in seven years. So, you know, he just didn't really have any support outside of prison. And Chris said, you know, John had said he needs to get a new pair of boots. Well, inmates don't have any money unless someone puts money on their books because, you know, they work in prison, but they make like, you know, 14 cents a day or something. And Chris said, Toby, send John some money for those boots. He needs some new boots, you know, get him some boots, send him the money to get his boots. And so we did. And at Christmas time, we'd send him a Christmas basket and his birthday is also on Christmas day. So kind of doubled up. And, um, and then a couple of years after we had been talking on the phone, Chris is from Maine and we were driving back to Maine to visit where Chris grew up. And John at that time was in a prison in New Hampshire. And he said, you're going to be right here. You should come visit me. I said, John, nobody's going to let me visit you in prison. He said, well, you never know. I'm going to send you the, the forms. You fill them out. So I filled them out and they came back approved, but one for Chris and one for me. So we stopped and visited John and it was such a good experience. We got a two hour visit and wait, 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 what was it? What was it like seeing his face again for the first time? It was so weird, but it was yet at the same time, it just felt so good. His hair had grayed and he looked older, which, you know, was surprising to me. And I'm sure I looked older to him too, but it was really good to see him. And John really liked Chris and Chris liked John. And we had a really good visit. And then when we left, you know, I got to give him a hug and say goodbye. And it just felt so good. And it felt, you know, like I could truly, you know, move on now. I've been able to close this. And it was such a good thing for us. What was your last interaction with John? Do you keep in touch at all? So we'd be in touch on a pretty regular basis. And then I wouldn't hear from him for a year or two. And then all of a sudden I'd get an email out of the blue and we'd pick up again an email and Right now, we're in one of those periods where I haven't heard from him for about a year. You know, he's, it's hard for him, I think, to still be in prison after all these years and have even, you know, it's likely that he'll never get out. And sometimes I think that's just hard for him. Yeah, you'd mentioned about how he hadn't committed the murder. He was Mm -hmm. driving the car. Right? Yes. And so because of the laws, he just sort of got lumped in with murder and he didn't pull any triggers but he was part of the effort. right and if he'd been one county over he would have gotten eight years you know that that's the justice system which is just crazy and then he got 20 years added on to his life sentence for the escape so it's doesn't look very good for him which breaks my heart but if somehow he were released mm-hmm I get the impression you'd be happy for him. Would you want to be in his life if he were free? I would be his friend and my husband would be his friend too. And we'd help him in whatever way we can. I don't see us ever having like a next door neighbor, really close type relationship, you know, but from a distance, I I would definitely be there for him and be his friend. 
Is there anybody else out there that you have yet to feel closure with? Well, my son, of course, you know, I don't, I, I don't feel like there's closure there. I mean, he has made a decision not to include me in his life. But it just feels, you know, kind of like the night John and I were arrested. We just went separate ways and it's just severed. There's not been a closure, you know, it's still raw and sliced. I do think that I have had some closure with some of my sisters because it doesn't hurt. You know, I still don't have relationships with them, but I don't have a hurt there. I've just accepted it. And, um, you know, and I wish them all that they have wonderful, happy lives. And I do see some of the stuff, you know, I hear my brothers talking about some of the things going on in their lives. So I know a little bit about what's going on, but I'd like to just be able to move past and just go on with our lives and not feel this tug to try to go back in time and answer for things you did 17 years ago, because the time for that's passed, you know, now we're just moving forward. What about your ex-husband? My ex-husband, uh, you know, I can't imagine. I know he was so embarrassed that this would happen. It played out in the media. He's a very, very private person. Um, we got divorced the day before I went to prison. So the day before my sentencing and we have not spoken uh, since the few conversations we had to sign the divorce papers. Uh, um, he has gone on and remarried and I think he's very happy and I'm really glad that he's happy and I hope he has a wonderful life, but there's no space in either one of our lives for each other at all. I wonder about how, when you do die, hopefully a long time from now mm -hmm. in your obituary will be this story. It probably will. <laughs> how do you feel about that? You know, this story really is the purpose of my life, but it's not so much the story, but what the story's done for other people. If I could just reach one woman with my story and change her life, it would all have been worth it. And I know I've reached way more than one woman because I have so many of them reach out to me. So I feel blessed and honored to have been given a very difficult path so that I can learn from it and use that to help other people. When I think about these women and people that you're reaching out to and really affecting, I picture women who've already made the mistakes or who've already made choices that have been not for the highest good of all involved. What about the people who are on the verge of making a decision that can really hurt a lot of people? So I feel like I have two audiences and then you just described both of them. So one of them is the woman who's made a mistake and is trying to recover from it. But I also tell my story in the hopes that women who are on the verge of making a desperate escape from their life will hear my message and reconsider the precipice that they're on and find a healthier way to get through it. Today, how are you? I'm great today. I really am. You know, uh, 
my husband has a son and I've been welcomed into their life. And in fact, we live in their house. We, they built a separate living space in their house for us. So I have two grandkids. Elisa is eight and David is seven. They live right upstairs and I see them every day and I'm very much a part of their life and, and I'm doing great. And we live outside of Washington, DC now, and I'm starting to get involved. I've been invited tomorrow evening to go to a commissioner's meeting on re-entry programs. And I'm going to start mentoring with another group, mentoring women who are getting out of prison here in the DC area. So, you know, I'm really kind of, I think, found my footing. We've been here about a year, but I finally, you know, found a place. And I think I'm going to start making an impact in this area as well. You know, I'm doing well and I'm happy and I feel like I'm making a difference. And I have, you know, so many things I'm working on. I did a two-day seminar in Kansas City in November on shame and I think I'm going to turn that into a book and I'm working on a book with my granddaughter and, you know, I'm working on three more workbooks. So I just have lots and lots and lots of ideas. And I hope when I die, I still have ideas on my work table. I don't ever want to feel finished. (laughs) Toby Dorr, thank you so much for telling me your story. You're welcome. This was the second installment of our Why'd You Do It series. On the first one, you'll hear from people who've robbed gas stations, that one has a bit of a twist at the end, abused lab animals, that one also has a twist, and sent death threats via Twitter. That one's a little bit of a redemption story. Not only will you hear why they did it, but about the very different choices they made afterwards. We'll have a link to it and to more information about Toby's books and her podcast at ctpublic.org audacious. This show is always so lovingly produced by Jessica Severin D. Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio, with help from our interns Carol Chen and Stacy Addo. Thank you very much for your star-filled rating of this show on your favorite podcast app and for sharing this episode with all the people you care about. And I am so into your thoughts on this episode. Please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Kion Wolf, and or please send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. And thank you so very much for listening.